Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word for the mercy and grace and kindness that you have shown towards us. We ask that you would bring this out from your text this morning. We ask for the Spirit's help to understand these words, to apply these words to our lives and to our hearts. And Father, if anyone here today does not know you, we ask that you would save them this very day. Father, we ask that you would overwhelm your people this day with your goodness, with your grace, with your mercy, with your love, with your kindness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When Moses led the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, the Lord led them down to the Red Sea to a place where they could not easily escape humanly speaking. And God told Moses that Pharaoh would say, the the wilderness has shut them in. And so it was. The Israelites were trapped on all sides with the, the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptian army behind them coming to slay them. When the Israelites realized the seriousness of their condition, they were in despair because they they knew there is no escape. We can't run to the right nor to the left. We can't go forward. And the only thing behind us is an army ready to slay us. We read in Exodus 14 that when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, listen to to their minds. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? They understood the hopelessness of their situation. They could not fight against this army and they could not escape. They were hopeless. But what did Moses say? Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. There was nothing physically that they could do to escape the Egyptian army. They were as good as dead, and they knew it. But God sovereignly saved them using His divine power to part the Red Sea and dry up the ground so that they could walk on it and to move the pillar of cloud in between them and the Egyptian army. Thus, they were saved 
by the sovereign hand of God. Now, if God could have saved them sovereignly without, without all of that drama, couldn't he? Why wait until the army gets there? Why not just part the Red Sea right away? Why not just kill the army in Egypt? What was God doing? He wanted them to see the darkness of their situation. He wanted them to see the, the blackness of their situation. He wanted them to feel the hopelessness of their situation. Why? So that against the backdrop of their hopeless condition, the salvation of the Lord would be so much sweeter to them. And not only that, but in seeing the, the hopelessness of their condition, they would have to say, salvation is of the Lord and of the Lord only. This is what God did for them. Look at your situation. What are you going to do? And they, they recognized, did you, did you bring us out here to die? This is, this is all we can do at this point in time. And once they understood that God showed His power in their Salvation. Likewise, Paul tells the Ephesians how dark their situation was so that against the, the, the dark backdrop of their condition outside of Christ, the, the marvelous light of God's grace, mercy, and love would shine through brightly. So in the first three verses of chapter 2, Paul lays out the dark backdrop. We were dead in sin, living in sin, following the world, the flesh, and the devil. We were sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath. And then now in verses 4-7, through against that dark backdrop, Paul lays out the glorious truth of how God saved us. Let us examine our text here. The first thing we see here is the riches. God's mercy. Verse number four, but God being rich in mercy. Our situation was dark. We were doomed. We were in despair. There was no hope, but God being rich in mercy. And notice what Paul did not say. He did not say we were dead in our sins, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, but we turned. He does not say, but we repented of our sins, but, but we decided to follow Christ, but we were seeking after God. No, we were dead in sin, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, but God. Salvation is of God. Again, Moses and the Israelites, surrounded on all sides with no escape but God. But God took them through on dry ground. And so it is with all believers. You are, you are helpless spiritually like the, the Israelites were physically, but God. But God being rich in mercy. Now what is mercy? The Greek word has to do with compassion shown toward offenders. One source defines mercy as that benevolence, mildness, or Tenderness of heart which disposes a person to overlook injuries or to treat an offender better than he deserves. The disposition that induces an injured person to forgive trespasses and injuries and to forbear punishment. Mercy is God 
not giving us punishment we deserve. And notice that mercy assumes guilt because mercy can only be shown when someone has done something wrong. Our guilt is assumed. We were sinners living in sin, following the world, the flesh, and the devil. And because of this, we deserved wrath. But instead of wrath, God showed us mercy. Meaning that He did not give us the punishment we earned, we deserved. This concept is stated so clearly by the psalmist in Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sin, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Before we were saved, if God would have dealt with us according to our sins or repaid us according to our iniquities, we would not be here today. We would have been dead and in hell long ago. But here we are. Our sins placed upon Christ and His righteousness imputed to us. Our sins and our transgressions washed away by the blood of Christ. Christ drank down the wrath of the Father so that it would not be poured out on us. Therefore, we don't suffer God's wrath even though we deserve it. What is that? That is mercy. Notice Paul says, not only is God merciful, but He is rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy. Paul stated how sinful we were in the first few verses so that we could see just how rich and mercy, God really is. Remember, once again, that before coming to Christ, you walked in sin. That was your lifestyle. You, you, you were so sinful that you were a son of disobedience. You, you spent your time following the course of of the world, following after the devil, following after your flesh, gratifying your sinful desires. You were living absolutely contrary to God every single moment of your life. You can reflect on how true this is of you. And how much wrath did you store up that God did not pour out Have you ever thought of your sins as storing up wrath? Jonathan Edwards in one of his famous sermons said that the wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher. God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. And you are every day treasuring up more wrath that the waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty. You can think about the pressure building up on a dam as it's blocking the water. And the water grows higher and higher, and it's more and more force against the dam. And Edwards is saying this is what our sins were like. We were, we were storing up wrath, and, and although God was withholding His wrath, it was becoming stronger and stronger, waxing more mighty. That's what was happening before you came to Christ. You were not winning cool points with God. You were storing up 
wrath. As you sin daily, living for the world, the flesh, and the devil, as a son of disobedience, the waters of God's wrath were increasing more and more against you. Every single sin increased the amount of wrath being stored up against you. And dear friends, since you were sinning against an infinite God, you had an infinite amount of wrath awaiting you. Your sins were as numerous as the the sands of the sea. Your, Your guilt was heaped up like a great mountain, and so you deserved an ocean of wrath. And yet, though your sins were infinitely great, and so you deserved infinite wrath, God did not punish you according to your sins, but instead, He showed you mercy. How much mercy? An infinite amount of mercy to cover an infinite amount of sin. An infinite amount of mercy instead of an infinite amount of wrath. This this is what Paul means when he says that God is rich in mercy. He has infinite mercy to give and we have received it. Our sin debt was so great that only a God rich in mercy could show enough mercy to forgive so large a debt. If God was a God of little mercy, we wouldn't make it. We need too much mercy. But He's rich in mercy. God is so merciful that when Moses says to God, show me your glory, God comes down and He speaks to Moses. And what does God declare about Himself? The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Moses, the fact that you're even speaking to me right now shows that I'm a merciful God and a gracious God. But, but, but why does God highlight, first of all, there, his mercy above every other attribute at that time? Because he is a merciful God. He is rich in mercy. Difference, you and I have been saved from spiritual death and a life of sin simply because God is merciful and rich. And mercy. Paul states it this way in Titus. But we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to through His own mercy. Did you notice that description? We were slaves of various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in in malice and envy. Passing our days in sin. but, But He saved us according to His own mercy. We are saved because God is rich in mercy. Paul also tells us about the greatness God's love. He goes on in verse 4, because of the the great love with which He loved us. We were not saved because of the great love we had for God. In our sinful state described in the first few verses, we were God's enemies. We served Satan. We did not love God. We loved our sinful pleasure. 
It, it was not our love for God that, that caused Him to in return love us. John says it's the other way around. We love because He first loved us. Dear friends, if you love God today, it's not because you're smart, it's not because you're good, it's because He loved you first. And He loved you. Not because you were lovely. Not because you were a lovable person. In fact, the first three verses of this chapter tell us the exact opposite. We, was, we were everything but lovely and lovable. We did not deserve love. As we were walking around as sons of disobedience, we were not endearing ourselves to the love of God. No, we were doing the opposite. We were storing up wrath, not endearing ourselves to God. Following after the world, the flesh, and the devil did not make us lovely in God's eyes. But let's be honest. We were abominable. We were vile. We were wretched sinners living as God's enemies. Nothing about us was, was lovely to a holy God. But, but, but did this stop God from loving us? What does Romans 5.8 say? But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows the, the greatness of His love and that he, he sent Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Do you understand the significance of that? This means that God did not wait for us to clean up our lives before He loved us. He did not wait for us to become more ethical and more moral before He loved us. He did not even wait for Christ to redeem us and impute His righteousness to us before He loved us. In fact, Paul said earlier that, that in love He predestined us to adoption as sons. He loved us eternally before the foundation of the world, knowing that we would be vile and wretched, unlovely. Sinners. He loved us. But we were wallowing around in the slop of sin. This demonstrates the great love with which He loved us because loving people who are lovely is not very hard to do, is it? If God chose to love us only after we became perfect, lovely creatures who loved Him, that would not say much. But the fact that God loved us while we were still abominable, God-hating sinners tells us that the love with which He loved us was indeed a great love. Have you ever loved someone who disobeys you? Who does you wrong? And who acts in a way that is just repulsive? But, 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 but you know you have to love this person. How hard is it to love in that situation? You meet your wife and she's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And she has a, a great personality and you just describe her as, as lovely. But then you're married for a while and, and sinful natures on both sides begin to show. Well, what are you going to do? 
takes a little bit more effort to, to love, doesn't it? The, the initial, initial infatuation with a beautiful woman wears off, doesn't it? This is why Paul commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. It's a duty. Not, not just how you feel at the moment. But this is what God did. We were not loved in any way. And yet, He loved us anyway. And this shows what, what Paul is saying, that, that, that this love was a great love. But now also the greatness of His love is shown in what He did for us. Once again, Paul says in Romans 5.8, but God shows His love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now how does Christ dying for us show the Father's love? It was the Father who sent His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John 4, 9, 1 John 4.9 In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not, not that he, we, we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. But not only were we not lovely, not only were we not lovable, but He sent His only Son with whom He was well pleased to take our place. So it's amazing that He even loved us. And it's amazing that He would send His Son to show His love. God sent His perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly spotless, perfectly lovely and perfectly lovable Son into this world to die for unlovable, filthy, wretched, God-hating sinners. That is the reality. This is equivalent to trading gold for dung. But this is what God did for us. Why did God do this? Paul says because of the, the great Love with which He loved us. If you are a Christian here today, it is not because you loved God or gave Him a reason to love you. You say, but I did a lot of good things and I helped a lot of people. Yes, and, and the prophet said, your, your good works were as filthy rags before a holy God while you were in your sin. Your so-called good works did nothing more than store up more wrath against you. It did not endear you to God, and yet He loves you. If you are a Christian here today, it is because despite your unloveliness before you came to Christ, He loved you with a great love. And so we can see thus far in our text that, that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We were living in sin following the world, the flesh, and the devil, sons of disobedience, children of wrath. And this means that as we were dead in our sins, we could not seek after God because the natural man, that is the spiritually dead man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So again, we were not able to raise ourselves 
up from spiritual death so that we could see our need for Christ. We were helpless, but God's mercy and His love led Him to do something to change our situation. And what did He do? Verse 5, Even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together. So God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive. Paul is simply saying, you were spiritually dead, living in sin, and you deserved wrath. But because God is so merciful, and because His love for you is so great, He raised you from your spiritual death, giving you newness, life. We already know what it means to be spiritually dead. We covered that last week, but, but what, it, what does it mean to be made alive? How is a spiritually dead person made alive? This is what we call the new birth. Regeneration. Being born again. As Christ told Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That the spiritually dead man cannot see the kingdom of God. But but once the Holy Spirit regenerates the heart of man, changing his nature, giving him a new nature, he can finally see his need for a Savior, and he can see that Christ is indeed a suitable Savior, and he can put his trust in Christ for salvation and turn from his sins. James in his epistle puts it this way, of his own will, he brought us forth. By the word of truth. God, according to His own will, brought us forth. He, he birthed us. Giving us spiritual life. He regenerated our hearts. He changed our nature. And just like you had nothing to do with your physical birth or your first birth, so you have no part in being born again. You have no part in your spiritual birth. You were born again according to God's will and by His power alone. This is what we call monergistic regeneration. It was an act of God. And you were not born again because you trusted in Jesus for salvation. You trusted in Jesus for salvation because you were born again. You were dead in your trespasses, meaning you were dead in the realm of sin. You had a sinful nature, so all you could do was sin. But God made you alive. He gave you a new nature. He set you free from the realm of sin. As Paul stated to the Colossians, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And did what? Transferred us to the kingdom. His love. That's what God did. And, not, and, and listen, it wasn't just that we were made alive, but, but, but notice he says, we were made alive together with Christ. And it can be taken different ways. Remember several verses back, we talked about the, the resurrecting power of God and, and how the, the same power that, that raised Christ from the dead is working in and towards us. Now Paul is saying, the power that made Christ alive when He was physically dead is the same 
power that raised us from spiritual death, making us alive. As God raised Christ from the dead, so He raised us up from being dead in our trespasses. And not only that, but as Christ was raised from the dead physically, so we too will be raised from the dead one day when Christ returns. So we see that there's some present benefit here, but there's also future benefit here. But I think the the main point that Paul essentially wants to emphasize is our union with Christ. We'll see how significant this is in a minute. But notice what Paul does in verse 6. He said, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul says we were made alive together with Christ. We were raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places. He speaks of the resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Christ. And he says we are united with Christ in those things. How so? I like how Charles Hodge answers this question. He says the life of the whole body is in the head. And therefore, when the head rose, the body rose. Each in his order, however. First Christ, and then they that are Christ. So on one hand, he, he points out that, that Christ is the head of the church, and we are His body. This means that we are one with Him. So that when He rose from the graves, grave, we rose from the grave. When He ascended, we ascended. When He was exalted, we were exalted because we are one. But also, one day, we will physically rise from the dead and go and be with Christ in an exalted state with a glorified body and a glorified mind. So why does Paul emphasize this? Calvin says he he emphasizes this to illustrate the change which has taken place in our condition when we were led from Adam This is the most drastic change that could possibly be made. You were dead in sin. You were walking in sin. You followed the world, the flesh, and the devil. You were a son of disobedience, a child of wrath. That was your condition before Christ, but now you have been saved. This, which means you are united to Christ, your head, so much so that not only have you been brought into His kingdom, but you arose with Him from the grave. You ascended into heaven with Him, and you are seated at the right hand of the Father with Him. You have gone from a place of spiritual death and darkness to a position of heavenly exaltation with Christ, a joint heir with Christ. Hamilton says, because of our union with Christ, we no longer belong to Satan's kingdom and are, and are not subject to his thraldom, his slavery. What does the apostle say in Romans? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What did we walk in before? Sin. But now we're united to and what are we walking in? Newness of life. God did this for us. God removed us 
from walking in the realm of sin, sinning nonstop to walking in newness of life as joint heirs of Christ. One other thing we should note is, is that Paul states these things in a tense which indicates that they've already happened. As, as though we have already been raised, as though we have already ascended, as though we have already been exalted with Christ, but yet we know that, that in a manner of speaking, we have been, but also we do wait for, for the physical resurrection of our bodies and, and to go and be with Christ and to be glorified. Why does Paul speak of these things as though they already happened? Charles Hodge says the, the blessings then of which the apostle here speaks are represented as already conferred for two reasons. First, because they are in a measure already enjoyed. This is the first part. We, we already enjoy some of the benefits of these things. Again, we walk in newness of life. We don't walk in sin. We're no longer slaves to Satan. We, we enjoy the, the fruit of that right here and right now. But, but also, Hodge says, secondly, because the continuance and consummation of these blessings are rendered certain by the nature of the union between Christ and His people. We already experienced many of the tremendous benefits of being united with Christ and the full attainment of these benefits is so certain that Paul speaks of them as though it's already been totally filled. What a tremendous thing that has been done for us. We were dead, hopeless, sinners. But because of God's abundance of mercy and His great love, He gave us spiritual life, causing us to trust in Jesus for salvation. He removed us from the domain of sin and the devil and brought us into His kingdom. He removed us from slavery to sin where we willfully followed the world, the flesh, and the devil. And He raised us up with Christ, giving us union with Christ, allowing us to experience some of the benefits of ascending and ruling with Christ here and now. And one day, we will experience the fullness of those benefits and our future is so certain that it is spoken of as already happened. What did you do to Why did God do that? Why? Why did God choose to, to show us mercy and demonstrate His love for us in, in such a way? God gives us the answer in verse 7. So that in the coming ages, He might show us, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ. Paul already told us that God is rich in mercy. And now he tells us again that he is rich in grace as well. And remember, he already, he already praised God for this in verse 7 when he, he talked about redemption. He said, in him we have redemption through his blood, the, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to what? The riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. We already learned about the riches of God's grace and, and how He is so rich in grace that the true believer can never out the grace of God for where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. 
Where sin abounds, grace hyper-abounds, the text says. But notice that Paul takes it even further. He doesn't just speak about the riches of God's grace. He speaks of the immeasurable of His grace. God is immeasurably rich in grace, and, and He desires to show this. This is why He has done this for us. He, he desires to showcase His grace so that in the coming ages He might show, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For ages to come, God is going to be showing His, his exceedingly great grace through His kindness toward believers. God was unbelievably kind to us in sovereignly saving us from our terrible condition. And, and, and He did this not only for our sake, but to demonstrate the immeasurably great riches of His grace. Dear friends, you and I are trophies of the grace of God. We are trophies of the immeasurable riches Why has God done what He has done in your life so that you will be trophy which showcases His grace? Yes, but I was the most vile, wretched sinner there could possibly be. Yes, and you became even a greater trophy of the immeasurable greatness of His grace. Now, notice he ends with in Christ Jesus. How many times have we seen that? Paul does not tire of repeating this over and over again. Why? Because Christ is the mediator of every blessing. Without Christ, we receive no kindness from God, only wrath. Without Christ, there, there is no mercy. Remember, remember that God's mercy is a just mercy. Meaning that God cannot just forgive sin without it being punished. He's a merciful God, but He's also a just God, and His mercy cannot go against His justness, His holiness, His righteousness. This means that in order for us to receive mercy from God, someone had to take the punishment that we deserve. God could not just say, your sins are gone. They had to go somewhere. Someone had to pay. We think of the wrath that we had stored up against us. The, the dam was, was ready to give way. It was beginning to crack. The, the, the judgment of God, His, His wrath was, was going to pour forth fiercely. And it wasn't as though God just snapped his finger and the wrath disappeared. No, he moved us out of the way and he put his beloved son there and poured out his wrath upon him so that we could receive mercy. Without Christ, there is no mercy to sinners. This is why he says, in Christ. Without Christ, we receive no grace. Without Christ, there is no salvation. This means that if you don't know Christ, you are not saved. If you are not trusting in Jesus 
for salvation at this very moment. I don't care how good you think you are. You are not saved. But this also means that if you find yourself to be a sinner here today and you put your trust in Jesus for salvation, all of these salvific blessings of God will be given to you through Christ. Do you hear about this great mercy and love and kindness and grace and say, I want to experience this in my life? Then perhaps this is a sign that God has awoken you, that He has raised you from the dead spiritually, and He is calling you to Himself right now. And what you need to do is turn to Christ for salvation. Trust in Him for salvation and turn from your sins. These blessings will flow in your life. Friends, we are debtors to the kindness, grace, mercy, and love of God. And we are debtors to Christ, the, the mediator of every spiritual blessing that we receive. We are trophies of the, the, the richest of God's mercy, trophies of the, the greatness of His love, trophies of the immeasurable riches of His grace and His kindness. When someone comes to you and says, hey, I knew you back a long time ago and, and you did this and you did that. What happened to you? Kindness, grace, and love. Why do, you, why do you live the way you do? Why do you love people the way that you do? The kindness, mercy, grace, love of God. Let me just close with this. That we are trophies of His grace and of His love and of His mercy and of His kindness. Should we not be a people who are known for the richest mercy we extend? If His mercy has been lavished. Should we be a people who have no mercy? Now, what did James say? Judgment without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. If you don't show mercy, it's a sign you've never received mercy from God because if you had received mercy from God, you would be so overwhelmed that you would show it to others. And should we not be known? For the greatness of our love towards others. Can a man have such love shown to him as God has shown to us and not love others? But we're commanded to love. We're commanded to love our neighbors. We're commanded to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And dear friends, we're even commanded to love our enemies. But how do I love those who hate me? How do I love those who are not lovely and not lovable? Look in the mirror. Because that's what God did for you. So you should be so overwhelmed by this. You can even love your enemy. Should we not be a people who richly extend grace to others? And should we not be known for our kindness as Christians? Dear friends, may God overwhelm us with His mercy, love, grace, and kindness as we consider who we were before Christ. How 
why God sovereignly saved us. And may we extend to others the, the mercy, love, grace, and kindness that has been so richly lavished upon us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we are standing here today only because You are a God rich in mercy. Only because of the greatness of Your love. Only because of the immeasurable greatness, the immeasurable riches of Your grace. Only because of Your kindness. Father, may we feel the weight We did nothing to endear ourselves to you. We were hell-deserving sinners. Yet, you loved us. And you saved us. And you sent your Son to die in our place. And you sent people with the Gospel to proclaim it to us so that we would hear the Gospel and be saved. Father, may we be so overwhelmed by what you have done for us moves us to do the same for others. That we would be people who show great mercy. That we would be people who extend great amounts of grace. That we would be people who, who love sacrificially. And that we would be people who are kind. Paul will later say in Ephesians, we are to imitate you as dear children. In your son's name we pray. Amen.